Hello and welcome to Testing Code. On today's episode, I've got an interview with M. Scott Ford of Corgi Bytes. We talk about legacy code, of course, but we also talk about how he got started with his company and quite a few other topics like technical debt, process debt, software testing, and readable code, and a lot more. I think it's a great interview, and I think it's one that you'll get a lot of information out of, so I hope you enjoy it. Thank you to nerdlettering.com for sponsoring the show. Nerd lettering is cool Python swag that's way cheaper than traveling to a conference to get some swag. I really like the t-shirts and hoodies that they have up now, as well as the mugs and mouse pads that they've always had. I've already got a mug and mouse pad, and now I've got my eye on this Pythonista hoodie that looks really cool. Go to nerdlettering.com and check out the great products and show the world how, how much you love Python. While you're there, check out the R story link to see some hand drawings of how some of these ideas get brought to life. It's really an interesting read. Don't forget to use the discount code test code. It'll save you 15% and it'll also let nerd lettering know that you got there from here. So thank you to nerd lettering. I also need to thank the Patreon supporters of the five to 7,000 downloads each episode gets. There are about 35 of you out there that have contributed to the Patreon campaign, and that seems like a small number of people, but I really, really appreciate it. If even just a handful more of you contributed a buck a month, it would help out quite a bit. So um, thank you to Patreon supporters, and if you want to join these awesome supporters, go to patreon.com slash testpodcast, or go to testencode.com and click on the donate button. Uh, now on to legacy code. Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. This is Testing Code, and I've got Scott from Corgi Bytes on, and I am excited to have you on. Cool. Thanks. So since I'm not going to be able to do an introduction for you, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so um, I'm the the co-founder and uh, chief code whisperer at Corgibytes. Um, we are a software development company that focuses um, exclusively on working with legacy code. Uh, we uh, and we are been accumulating a, a team of people who absolutely love it, and that's kind of you know that's that's our passion. That's that's what we like to do. We like to make other applications better. That's fascinating to me. Before you got into Corgibytes, how how did this happen? How did how did you get a to start doing a consulting company around uh, legacy? It was uh, it it was it's quite a long journey. Um, I I job top a lot over my career. My my first um, my first you know job doing any kind of like significant software development was on the X thirty one experimental fighter, and I was working on the, the testing tools to help determine whether or not the aircraft was safe to fly. And the 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 project that, that we had to do on that was to try to see if we could like build a drop in replacement for the the testing uh, tool, um, because the because it would only run on like two eighty six computers, um, and the 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 Navy was having a lot of trouble keeping two eighty six computers around at the time. This was um, around two thousand one two thousand two, um, and you know it was it was it was quite a challenge when you could you could you know walk out to uh to Best Buy and get uh you know get a really decent computer that was like just paled in comparison to a to an old two eighty six. 
Um, so we were kind of a, a spike project to try to just as an experiment to see, is it even possible to build a drop-in replacement without disrupting any, any of the rest of the team? So we had to um, we had to reverse engineer how that application worked um, and, uh, and then be able to make sure that we build a replacement that could run the same test scripts. Okay. Um, so, and, you know, go through all the, all the challenges of, you know, figuring that out. It was, I kind of describe it as like cucumber, but for an aircraft, um, you know, <laughs> oh, think <okay>. of it <laughs> uh. very much, you know, for, you know, functional testing in terms of like, you know, what's supposed to happen under different scenarios. And it's the, the, those tests were authored by, um, you know, someone with an engineering background and not a software background. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think like, you know, things got, things got started from there where, um, like I had a lot of fun on that project and after like that project hit its natural, you know, life cycle, I kept trying to recreate, I, I kept trying to find other places where I could have that much fun. And I noticed that I would have, I would have a lot of fun whenever I started somewhere new. And then, you know, about six to eight months, the honeymoon was kind of over and I wasn't having fun anymore. And so after, you know, about 10-ish years, I decided to like, well, maybe the secret is to start my own company that, you know, perhaps I'm unemployable after trying a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but then, you know, the first couple of clients, we had this, we had the same thing happen. So my business partner, Andrea, um, she, she really sat down with me and sort of helped me do some analysis of like every single project that I liked working on and what was it that they all had in common. And out from that popped out this, this idea that what I enjoyed doing was fixing bugs and cleaning up technical debt on every single one of those projects. And it was during those first six months that I was allowed to do that, um, okay. without, would, you know, without being told to, to not do it because it was very much in the like, oh, you know, go clean stuff up while you're learning, you know, you know go, go, go fix bugs and clean up technical debt as a way to, as an exercise to learn the system. Um, but then I was told to stop doing that when it was like, you know, it was still fun. Yeah. So now you, now you can get to just uh, hop around to new companies as a consultant. So, yeah. So, and how big is, uh, how many people are working on Corgi Bytes projects? Um, we have our staff is right now at about uh, twelve. Okay, uh, Pretty and we have seven seven developers and then support staff. And you still get to get your hands dirty with code, or are you uh, busy being a manager? Um, I still I still get my hands busy with code. There is you know more management and you know kind of helping run the business uh, that that creeps in. But I do I try to stay like you know about half my time is is deep in the code. I we start off all our projects doing a technical discovery. Um, and I'm the one who spearheads the, the technical discovery projects. So, um, so what is a technical discovery? So we, we've drawn a lot of inspiration from, uh, from like remodeling buildings. So we kind of, we call like our approach to software development, software remodeling. Okay. And so our technical discovery is what we call a, a code inspection, which might be similar to a house inspection. If you're buying a new house, just a way to kind of assess, you know, what's there, you know, without necessarily without any judgment. Um, and kind of establish a baseline for if we make any improvements, this is, you know, they better be, you know, this is what we'll be measuring ourselves against. And uh, do you, does that involve uh, talking with the engineering team that's going to end up maintaining it as well? Yeah, we, if we have access to the team that, that built it, which sometimes we don't, um, then, you know, interviews are great. Um, we try to keep them relatively short, you know, about like an hour or so. We don't like to eat up anybody's time a whole lot and kind of be respectful of, of, you know, timelines that, that people are under. Okay. The, our main, you know, one of the main things that we're looking at is how, 
how well documented is the system, you know, in terms of, um, and how, how maintainable is the system? So, you know, as a legacy project, like, you know, if it had to change hands abruptly from one team to another or from one developer to another, how, how detrimental would that be? And so that's one of the things we look at. So having, you know, not having a whole lot of interaction, uh, I think helps that. Um, we, we do ask for like, you know, where, where people think the trouble spots are, where they think we should be looking. Um, and also kind of getting a heads up about, um, you know, if there's, if there's a particular area of the code base that's on the roadmap to just get completely cut, you know, and then we won't spend a whole lot of time focusing on that piece. Um, okay. now it, so. after you guys leave, is it, um, are you the people maintaining this code or do you leave it in a state that it could be maintained by somebody in the company? We've we've done both where we've you know we've been kind of maintaining these apps long term. So we'll do a, we'll do an inspection, and then um, uh, from that inspection we identify some things that we think you know would benefit in terms of paying down technical debt. Um, you know ways that the application can be improved, um, whether it's you know making the, the test suite better, um, improving practices around deployment. Um, you know there are a lot of a lot of a lot of different things we look at um, that go into making the development team more efficient is, you know, kind of the metric that we're looking at. And the, um, cause you, we kind of, I have this attitude that the, it's the, um, it's technical debt that slows your team down. Yeah. Right. And, and so if, and that's kind of where you observe, observe the issue first is that your team's not as productive as, as they once thought they were. Um, and that's an indication that there's some kind of debt, whether it's process debt or technical debt. And, you know, so, so taking the time to like, you know, really, really look at those and, and hone in and, and help improve those. And sometimes we're the ones who, who take that on entirely because the previous team doesn't, isn't around anymore. And so, you know, we'll, we'll take a project from scratch, you know, we'll take the project all by ourselves and start, you know, doing the things that, that we suggest need to be done. Um, and then, you know, that'll get handed back, back over to, to another team. Like we have one client right now who, um, it was an application that was built by an offshore team, um, and that the relationship between the business uh, and the the team that built the the software broke down. So we took over development, and we've been working with them for about a year. And now we've got the application to stable enough where it actually makes more sense for them to start hiring an internal team, an internal development team to work on it. So we've kind of like we've we've addressed the issues that they had that were coming out of. Um, coming out of the offshore team in terms of, you know, stability and, um, the, the features that they wanted. So we've been able to turn that around and, uh, improve a lot of the metrics and now they're, they're getting ready to hire their own, their own staff. And so we'll be transitioning back over to them. Okay. And, uh, what, what languages are you primarily working with or is it we, across the board? We, yeah. So we, we take the approach of uh, any language, any platform, any framework, we I have this idea that the challenges for legacy code are there regardless of the language and the frameworks you're using, um, and that uh, you know a, a you know expertise in the language is, is always important, and we don't necessarily need someone who's only ever worked in that in that stack. So we you know we've got people on our staff who have a lot of Ruby experience, a lot of Python experience, a lot of Java experience, a lot of .NET experience, uh, and you know our our projects are across the board as well up until probably I would say like the, the first maybe five or so clients we had were um, more Ruby on rails than anything else. 
Um, and then since then, it's been um, it's been diversifying quite a bit. We've got more .NET clients. Um, we actually have a, a Delphi uh, a Delphi Seven application that we're working on for Windows Desktop. Um, and we're migrating that to the latest version of Delphi, and um, and then we've got a, a a Groovy on Grails project. Interesting. I don't ever, I don't usually think of Ruby as as a legacy, but uh, um, I, <laughs> yeah. I thought you'd be like working in Fortran or Lisp or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we we see, you know, you can you can quickly get an application into a legacy state, um, and what we consider to be legacy is that there's um, there's no communication artifacts that are documenting the ideas for why you've built what you've built. Um, probably one of the best communication artifacts that we think is a, is a test. So like, you know, like, you know, an automated test that describes how you, know, what you've built should work, but there are other artifacts of thought too. So, um, you know, decent commit messages in your source code repository. We've, we've taken on projects that haven't had source code repositories. And so we haven't had any kind of history for why certain decisions were made or how the application has grown. That's one of the things we look at as part of our inspection is we, we look at the history um, in, this, in the source control repository to try to help us determine you know, what files are changing more than others um, and which ones need, you know, might need more attention than others. Um, I, I like so, that you focused on the question of why. Because I've found that the why something is the way it is is the is that's often the thing that you can't get by just looking at the code and running it and figuring it out. You can't figure out why. Right. The code will always show you what. Right. The code. The code is the perfect documentation of what. Yeah. Um, if you need, if you find yourself needing a better documentation of what, then you need to clean up the code. Right. <laughs> like. <laughs> Like it's 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 that simple, but the but the whys the the answers to the whys those those are those are always harder. And you you brought up testing a couple times. How and I'm assume hope thinking that testing is a big part of of uh, these projects, and that you also want to get this done as fast as possible. Um, I mean, maybe not as fast as possible, but not wasting time. So, do you have a, a like a pragmatic approach to? testing or what is your view on levels of testing and how do you write those? Yeah. So we like to, you know, kind of use tests for safety. So just, you know, try to make sure that the, that we're not breaking anything that we're touching and that the things that we have built work the way we intend them to. That doesn't mean that we need a 100% exhaustive test suite from the start. Um, a lot of times it, it may just mean that we want like one smoke test to help give us like a safety net for, you know, for the area of the application we're touching. Um, we also don't advocate to our clients that they, you know, if they don't have a test suite, that they stop all feature development and, and build one from scratch. Like that, I'd, I'd consider that to be, a, you know, a poor investment. Um, instead, you know, basically make a decision that from, you know, if, if you have an app that doesn't have tests, make a decision to, that you're going to start adding them with every, every you know, everything you checked in. Okay. Um, and so, you know, just kind of start taking the attitude of anything that you change is going to get covered by tests. Um, and if there are parts of the application that never change, then those may never be covered and that's okay. Um, and then do you, are these, uh, tests, um, individual component tests or functional system tests or, um, what kind of, what levels of tests are you applying? Yeah. So we, we like to, um, 
um, I have a, a blog article that I, I wrote called like a pyramid of testing. Um, we kind of like to take the approach of like you should have a lot more unit tests than you have integration tests than you have acceptance tests, but you do want some of all all three kind of you want some of all three kinds. You don't want to have a system that's you know only integration tests. That's going to be a, a relatively slow test suite, and it might be incredibly thorough, um, but you're testing a lot of functionality that you know you don't have control over and you don't necessarily need to be testing. Um, so, you know, looking, you know, looking at the, focusing at the unit level for the majority of your testing and making sure that, that you are testing the interconnections between the components you're building and that you are also have a few tests that are full stack. Um, but you don't need like an exhaustive full tax, full, full stack test suite, for example. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So kind of as you, as you go up the, as you kind of go up the pyramid from the unit test in terms of complexity, you should have, you know, fewer and fewer, um, and I think there's some metrics that you can use use for that too, like the um, um, for evaluating that. So I would I would think the code coverage for the unit tests, getting getting that to 100% is a is a viable you know is a viable driver. Um, but 100% code coverage for the acceptance tests that's a that's a waste of money. Huh. Um, so. um, d- now I'm I'm just gonna like let it be because I'm on the uh, uh, I disagree with this, but. Oh, okay. Um, I, but I, I'm not working on the projects you're working on. So, um, one of the things that um, I found was that a lot of the unit tests tend to be change detectors. Um, they, mm. they're things that you always have to change if you're going to change the code. Mm-hmm. And so, if um, I like to, at every le- any level I'm testing at, I want to make sure that it's a, a behavior test and not a design test mm. um so that because i'm i know like i guess I, I think of writing software similar to writing uh um prose uh it's going to be edited and i'm going to get it wrong the first time so um but i don't want to have to i do want to understand what the api is and what the uh expected behavior for a chunk of code is but the uh-huh. individual implementation of how I accomplish that, um, I might change my mind several times and uh, having to change the tests. Every time I have to t- change both the test and the code, there's a risk of me uh, just changing the test so that it passes instead of uh, changing it because I decided to change the behavior. Um, oh. And that's that's my fear of uh, a unit test heavy. The other, the other fear I have is the... Um, with uh, promoting the test pyramid is um, that it's the, since the top of the pyramid so small that mostly I think people just say, I'll just write unit tests and forget about all system level tests. Yes. That, that would be a mistake. It's like say forget about all system level tests would be a mistake, but, but at the same time, like I've seen, I've seen applications that only have acceptance tests, for example, and it's like a four hour test suite. And, you know, yeah. like, and, and, and now you've, you've got, now you have that influencing developer behavior where now developers aren't writing tests because, and they're not running the test suite because it's so painful. Um, so you've like, you're really losing the value at the team level from, um, you know, from having the test suite to, to begin with. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of like fighting that psychology issue as well. I can certainly see some of the, some of the points you're making. Those are very valid. But the the you, you haven't found that um, uh, an extensive unit test suite uh, ever gets in the way of uh, changing a design. Um, oh, it certainly does. 
It certainly does. And I don't, I don't see like, I guess I, I see the purpose of the unit test is not, not to, it's like in as much as that it's, it's testing design, it's testing the correctness of the design as it's intended. Um, it's more the behavior tests that are making sure that you have an altered behavior if you change design. But yeah, I would expect that, you know, unit tests would have to be changed drastically. Uh, and if you, if you change the underlying code drastically. Okay. Uh, so if you, if you, you know, go to an entirely new design, um, you're probably gonna have to chuck a whole bunch of unit tests. And I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily stress, I don't, I don't try to try to stress about keeping unit tests around that, you know, aren't really serving me anymore. I see that as like, you know, just kind of like any other blocks of code. Um, yeah. You know, if if it's not uh, if it's not the design that I want anymore, then it's going to get chucked. And you know, the tests for the old design don't make sense anymore. And um, then for uh, higher level tests, do you guys use uh, like cucumber like tests, the uh, English descriptions? Uh, yeah, we we do this from time to time. Um, you know, especially for the clients that um, we like the most for scenarios where the client is is help is involved in helping you know edit and write those. Um, that's where I that's where I see the the biggest benefit is when you actually you're using that as a communication tool with someone who is um, doesn't have as much technical experience. Um, I think you know the, if you have if you have the only people who are looking at the test suite are ones with an, with an, a very very high amount of uh, of you know technical experience, then you know some of the value of having the English like English like test suite starts to starts to fade away. I think you really you get more of that value when you're you're using that as a tool to communicate with the people who want the system to work a certain way um, to help them be confident that it's working that way. Okay, so if you had like a, a programmer audience in the first place, you would probably use a some just an uh, some other test framework. Yeah. Okay. Now you also uh, mentioned that sometimes processes need to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So like one would be using using source control. Like that's a that's a process change, right? Yeah, so, yeah um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, and and there there are there are projects out there that that we've that we've taken on that haven't had source control, um, or they've been using source control, but all of their commits are along the lines of, um, you know, like foobar style, um, you know, messages, and there's not really a lot of information as to why things changed, or you have a lot of things changing at the same time, and it's unclear why. So, you know, kind of encouraging the culture of starting to document why in your commit messages, um, you know, yeah. in, ad- in, in addition to what, um, you know, having an issue tracking system where you're, you're keeping track of, of what your issues are, um, like, you know, that's, that's a form of documentation, right? That's a, that's a form of why your systems needing to change, you know, issues were identified, there was a discussion on them, you know, the, the issue was resolved somehow, uh, whether it was, you know, decided not to fix it or it was, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a glitch or, you know, something that was wrong with the system itself and needed, needed a source code change to, to address, you know, yeah, that's, that's a form of documentation for keeping track of like why your systems need to change. Um, we've, we've worked on teams that haven't had those, you know, haven't been using those either. Um, okay. and then, you know, other, you know, other things that we really encourage is, um, having uh, an easy and repeatable deployment process. So, you know, is we've also find that a lot of teams, a lot of the behavior that they adopt is based on how hard it is to deploy their app. Um, and there are teams that we've worked with who, you know, deployment for them is a, is a very manual process that takes several hours. Um, and backing that out, if something goes wrong or something is detected, takes just as long. 
So there's a lot of there's a lot of stress leading up to the deployment event, and making sure that things are exactly right. Um, so you know one of the one of the things we really encourage is to try to get the deployment process to be as fast and as repeatable as possible, so that if you do have to back it out, you can back it out very quickly, um, and then you can start you know kind of gaining some gaining some confidence by by deploying more often. Are you frequently you frequently or always working with uh, web applications? Frequently, um, I would say most okay. are our web applications. We, we do have the one Windows desktop app that we're working with um, and, you know, kind of see deployment as building the installer package. Um, like that's, you know, that's the active, you know, in term for the purposes of the development team anyway, like that's, that's their deployable asset. Okay. Um, and that's the thing that someone could use to, to then install. Um, do you recommend like staging uh, a staging server then or? Yeah. So we like to, we like to see, you know, a, a, you know, some kind of staging environment that's used to, you know, communicate with people who, who are doing manual testing. Um, there's certainly value in having, you know, humans do manual testing um, to the extent that humans are really good at thinking of things that, um, of thinking of ways to break things. So, you know, having, having a staging environment that, let, that you know, creates that, that space to do some exploratory testing is always is always really valuable. Now, do you utilize your um, a the who are the doing the manual tests for you guys or for the code you're working on? Somebody within the the company or uh, most often it's someone who has experience with you know how it's supposed to work after the after the change that's been made. Um, you know that can be someone on our side, but we're more comfortable if it's you know someone who's who's on. Uh, you know, kind of in, you know inside the company and has you know really really intimate knowledge of what ex, you know what acceptance is for, um, okay. or would would know to like um, would know to try things that we haven't thought to try right because the things we've thought of we've likely written tests we've likely written automated tests for um, it's the things we haven't thought of that it's really valuable to have somebody go in and, and do a little bit of manual testing since you probably work with companies uh, more definitely more companies than I work with since I'm only working at one company uh, what is the percentage of people that utilize a dedicated QA team versus uh, people that have just in their engineering staff do the uh, testing I don't know that the companies that we're looking at are necessarily representative as the industry as of a whole as a whole um, most most of the companies that we've seen don't have a dedicated QA um, you know, QA staff or dedicated QA resources. That's something that the um, that the the team that's re- responsible for the application itself, which is you know, which is almost always a mixture of software developers and um, you know, people with business expertise. Yeah. Um, you know, like that that collective team ends up being responsible for for the correctness of the system. Um, well, I'm seeing that more and more too. Uh, the The reason why I bring it up is that the documentation for a lot of agile processes like Scrum and XP is still being done in places. There is an assumption there that there's a QA team that deals with it after the fact. Hmm. I guess since I brought it up with the agile and Scrum and stuff, do you utilize any um, iterative processes and or recommend any? Yeah, we advocate really strongly for iterative processes, and in fact, we we like to you know kind of focus on you know, looking at looking at all the the cycles that you have um, in your you know in your whatever process you're using, and trying to shorten those uh, to get the to get the most benefit as you can from when a decision is made to when you can observe an effect from it, yeah. so that you can then you know make a correction if needed, and you know and then kind of you continue to loop. Um, you know, even even the waterfall processes have, you know, they have that 
built in where there's you know there's a decision made and then you're able to see the outcome you're able to see an outcome from that decision um you know they i feel like the the waterfall processes have you know a much longer time from initial decision to to you know concrete outcome um and if the if the concrete outcome is deserved is determined to not be what's desired then you do go you do go through the process again um so you know even that is a as you know as a cycle of sorts one of the things with the waterfall and other what we think of as traditional development is a, a notion that you're coming up with, I guess, a requirements and uh, functional specifications before starting software. Are the projects you're working on, do you have like a re- preset requirements before you get there or they, um, do you have to f- discover these on your own? Yeah, they, it's, it's, it's almost all discovering as we go. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, discovering by, uh, you know, by learning, learning what's desired and then, you know, working up um, a potential response to 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 whatever whether it's a whether it's a bug or a feature, I kind of you know classify them all together. It's you know, regardless of whether it's a bug or a feature, the system that's in place is doing something is not doing what's needed, right? Okay. So, in in the case of a feature, it, the system needs to do something new that it hasn't done before. In the case of a bug, it needs to stop doing something that it is doing, right? Like it's doing something you know incorrectly. Okay. Um, so that's you know those those are both examples of it it not working the way that the user needs it to. Um, so you know so learning what that is at a very con- got a concrete level for that like that one that one issue, and then and then fixing it. Um, and that's a different approach than you would take from building an app from from scratch right from from ground up. Yeah. Um, you know because again like we focus on 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 systems that already exist. Um, and you know we're we're adding additions we're fixing we're fixing bugs we're cleaning up technical debt. Um, you know we're you know, helping those systems, you know, uh, you know, kind of pit, pivot towards a, a feature state. Are you um, taking out features sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and like, and I think I think that's something that, as an industry, we don't do enough of. I think I think deleting features is something we should we could we could really do a lot better, better job at. And I think also um, having having system and tooling support to help us detect when features are not used anymore. Um, Ooh, I know there's yeah. A, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of teams that you know spend a lot of time maintaining maintaining features, and they have no idea if those features are even used. Um, and if if they're not being used, or they're being you know severely underutilized, um, you know that that could really help inform you know the business as a whole whether or not it's worth investing the engineering resources into something that so few people are using. Now, I cut you off when you were talking about iterative processes and stuff. What sort of processes do you utilize? Do you use Scrum or, or what? So we, we if, you know, if the team that we're working with has an established process, we, we work within that. Um, and if the, you know, if the team that we're working with doesn't have one um, or there isn't a team, then, you know, then we, you know, kind of take over and, and establish, establish our own. We tend to lean towards, um, you know, very Kanban style. Okay. Um, of of development, we think that that's a really good fit for existing projects that that you know, need more because what what you're working on on existing projects is is especially legacy projects that are, that are kind of in this legacy state where they need help. It's a it looks a lot more similar to a support cycle um, than it does um, you know uh, an engineering cycle if that makes any sense. Um, so you, you know you're you have you have individual specific of specific critiques that you're reacting to and responding to and moving, you know, moving those critiques through, through a process, um, and, and addressing those one at a time. 
you know, then becomes the goal and kind of prioritizing those one at a time, like which one of these are we going to work on first? I guess I'm, I'm thinking about IT support staff. They, they can't plan their, their week ahead of time or do sprint as, as easily if it, if it's mostly dealing with tickets from users. That's the, that's kind of like how, how we look at it is, you know, it could be a ticket from the business owner. It could be a ticket from the product owner, right? Like, but it's, it's something that's come up like, you know, relatively recently and prioritizing that and kind of triaging that against, uh, you know, other things that, that also need to be addressed um, and then fixing those in priority order. Uh, so it looks, it looks a lot more like, you know, uh, kind of almost like medical triage uh, in that sense of, you know, you, you, could have, you could have something that comes in today that is deemed to be way more important than anything else that's in progress. Um, and what, what might make the most business sense is to, is to halt work as cleanly as possible on the things you have open so that you can start on this thing that's really critical. Now, uh, the Kanban style, you're having items that you're going to work on and prioritize, but then they go through what, like a holding bucket thing and then in process and done? Yeah, so you have, you have some kind of, like you almost always have those, those kind of three basic steps where you have, um, you know, it's ready to be worked on, it's being worked on, and it's completed. And you can have different phases of that. Like you can have different aspects of what needs to be done. Um, and, you know, in that, so you can have, you can have a really complex workflow that, that a task kind of, that a task moves through, including like it's ready for it to be manually tested. Right. And then, okay. you know, it's being manually tested. It was manually tested, um, you know, as an example, or, you know, it's, it's being investigated, right. Or it's like ready for investigation. It's being investigated. Um, like we verified that it's a, it's an issue. And so now, you know, we're investigating, you know, how to fix it. Um, and kind of, you know, move, moving through a cycle that way, but you're kind of like, you're doing, you're doing that at an issue by issue level. You're not doing it at like, you're not moving the whole software system through, through those gates, you know, one at a time. So do d- different issues go through different stages then, I guess? Uh... Yeah. So depending on, you know, different issues could, and it's, you know, again, it's, it's entirely up to the team to decide like what kind of workflow they want to build, um, you know, to, you know, for, for whatever they're working on. Um, and then one of the one of the things you usually focus on is trying to trying to minimize the number of things that are in progress at any one time. Okay. Because um, it's the 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 basic idea is that if you have um, it's kind of like based on the idea of an assembly line. So if you have like an assembly line with say a thousand steps, um, and if you take the assumption that once once something goes into the assembly line, you it has no value until it's done. Or it has little value until it's done. It can't be really used until it finishes the assembly line. Um, then, if you have like if you have a thousand things that are in that assembly line and that are in that in that state, and you learn that you need to stop, you now have the entire the entire contents of the assembly line is not waste. Okay. Um, right. So you know, so it's so it's it's kind of like trying to minimize how much waste there is in the system in terms of you know work work that's half done. Yeah, and then so if you get find yourself having too much work in progress, how do you deal with that? Do you do you uh, uh, double people up on uh, shift people around or? Yeah, so I think you know, that then it that is then the idea is you you adjust staffing to help you help you move move tasks through your pipeline faster or don't start anything new. Uh, yeah, and so like you know there are some teams that maintain really strict limits. Uh, there are other teams where like they they use you know, whether or not they're exceeding thresholds as a, like a health status for the team, 
um, you know, if they if they find that they have too much work in progress, that might be an indication that they need to hire, they need to staff up. Um, yeah. Or it or it could mean that um, you know there there are other issues uh, with the system that that might need to be like more systemically taken a peek at. And I, I don't really want to get into like uh, competing tools, but do you have a particular favorite tool you use for tracking this? We um, almost all of our projects use uh, use GitHub for source control. Okay. Um, and there's a a tool called Waffle.io that sits on top of GitHub issues and gives you um, lets you build Kanban boards uh, to move tasks through. Uh, and so we really like using that. The, one of the things we really like about it is that you, it because it's on top of GitHub issues. Um, if you prefer the UI of looking at you know just a list of issues, yeah. then you you can still certainly interact that way. Um, and then any update that's made from that UI is also reflected in the um, in the other kind of board style UI. The GitHub team has also added like GitHub projects, which uh, has you know similar functionality, where you can create you can create cards that you move through a process. Okay. Um, the the kind of the, the differentiator there between GitHub and Waffle.io. I know you said you didn't want to get into tools. <laughs> no, so, no, that's fine. Um, every everything on the board in Waffle.io is an issue in in GitHub, whereas with the GitHub projects, this, that one to one relationship isn't guaranteed. You can create you can create things on the board that aren't in the issues, um, and I can see that being desirable in either direction, right? And I think for our purposes, you know, you know our preferences really we would like making sure there's a one-on-one correspondence okay i think you've got an interesting uh, company there and um i i think a very pragmatic approach to how you deal with um all of the process around it anything else you want to talk about that is that we should talk about with the legacy code or with testing or with process so something that that we really focus on is that i, I think hasn't been touched on is that whoever's done the work has done their best and that's 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 always our assumption going into any project, okay. is that whoever's worked on it before we got there, they did the best they could. Um, they did the best they could with the constraints that were that they had. Some of those constraints might have been knowledge, some of them might have been experience, some of them might have been time, um, you know, some of them might have been stress, right? Um, but those those were the constraints, and that's and those constraints yielded that result. And so we we try not to like, you know, we don't. Even when we're doing a code inspection, we're never like, who are these idiots? That's not something we would ever say. Um, I think you know, that's important to say because yeah. we're arrogant geek. Yeah. And <laughs> you look at some code and go, what kind of moron would write this? This is direct, horrible code. Um, right. But it doesn't take long on the job to realize that most of the time when you say that, it's your own code that you wrote a month ago or two months ago. Right. And and, and sometimes you know it can, be, it can be a constraint in terms of the system that you're working with that that yields it needing to be written a certain way, which is, you know, less than optimal uh, in other, other characteristics. So like if, you know, highly performant code doesn't usually read well, right? Like, yeah. And so if, if, if high performance is more important than, than readability, then, then, you know, that's, that's how your, that's how your app's going to skew. Well, I guess one of the things that I, that I've seen in is um, premature optimization happens. Are those issues that you guys deal with as well? We haven't been asked to help out with performance specifically yet, um, but I, you know the the approach that I like to take performance is very much a measure, uh, you know, experiment and learn approach. Okay. Where, you know, like let's let's collect measurement on on what's there, 
And then if we think something different is going to be better, let's, let's make that change and kind of run an experiment and see, is it actually better? Nice. Um, and then if it's not, then, you know, take it out. And I think the same thing for whether or not, you know, making, making something more readable would make it worse, right? If there's a concern that, you know, by making a, a chunk of code more maintainable or more readable or more easy to understand, that, that might make it slower. That's something I would want to do a similar experiment on, you know, and, and, you let that kind of determine, you know, which which direction to go. So readability is very important to you. Uh, yeah, readability is very important to me because I mean we, um, uh, and and I think I think it really should be across. Uh, I think it should be across the industry that you know we spend way more time reading code than we do writing code, um, and you know code is read by humans just as much, if just as much, if not more so, than it's read by machines. And it being easy to read and understand by humans, I think, is, you know, is very important. Um, Does that apply to test code as well? I do. Yeah, I do apply that to test code as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen some test code get pretty ugly. And, like, that's, uh, but, you know, that's, that's a, for me, that's a, that's a cleanup area, right? You can have a test that's difficult to maintain uh, and a test that's difficult to understand uh, as a result. Are you taking on new clients uh, if there's somebody that has some legacy code they need you to fix? Yep. Yeah, we're you know actively looking for for new clients. Where you know as as demand grows, we we've been growing our team. Um, okay. And also, if there are if there are people out there who, who would love to focus on that you know that kind of work exclusively, you know, kind of hitting us up to you know pass the resume along. Your website is CorgiBytes. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep, CorgiBytes.com. I will uh, throw that in the show notes. And uh, thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again to Patreon supporters and Nerd Lettering for sponsoring this episode. Show notes are at testingcode.com. Follow me on Twitter at Brian Aachen or the show either at Test Podcast or at Testing Code. Thanks a lot.